welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we find out what a life in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and in this episode, I'm joined by urban ecologist and natural historian Dieter Hockulay. Dieter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, John. No worries. Regular listeners of the podcast may already be familiar with your work, because uh, you were on our live event a couple of weeks ago. Yes, the wonderful event at the Camelot Lounge. Of- yes, and you, you took away the, the grand prize at the end of the night. Yes, it's a special trophy. Unfortunately, there's no video of this event, but it's still sitting here in my office. <laughs> it's um, up here in, yeah, on the trophy yeah, cabinet. Pride of place. <laughs> is, this, is this your bodybuilding trophy next to it? Uh, well, there's, there's a bodybuilding trophy there, but that was given to me by an ex-PhD student who decided that simply giving the bottle of wine at the end of the PhD was a bit um, probably unhealthy <laughs> not, not for enough. me. So he went to a trophy company and decided to make my trophy because I think I complain about not winning enough stuff to my... I have been for a long time. So, um, so that's why that's got pride of place there. There's a few, you know, so it's, it's important like, you know, It's important to celebrate those successes. So my, my golden dinosaur and my bodybuilder are both pretty important <laughs> in the office. And they're good conversation starters when people come in to have a, a look if you're trying to avoid talking about science. <laughs> Wait, I mean, yeah, how, how has life, life changed since winning the in-situ science Champion award. <laughs> well, it's been a roller coaster. I mean, you know, I was, my, my agent has been, you know, fielding various inquiries for endorsements and the like. So, look, I, it was good for my self-esteem. It was lovely to, to, I mean, being a part of those live events and speaking to three other scientists and and, and having you host was really fun because you actually, you learn a lot from just hearing those different perspectives and just even just sitting on a on a stage talking science. It always makes you reflect a little, little bit when you finish mm. anything about. All the interesting stuff you hear because the, the, the day-to-day life in science can involve an awful lot of, of, of pretty dull stuff. And, you know, <laughs> the, 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 there's a lot of administrative and bureaucratic and, and managerial requirements. And then you hear, you know, I still think back to hearing about um, Sophie talking about her fluids and Naomi speaking about her, her stem cells and Mike speaking about his about his sex, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and, and just and just you, you hear a lot of those stories when you're in this community where you go, oh wow, that's really fascinating and. You take it for granted sometimes when you're in, in, a, in, in this kind of research community mm. that there's so many interesting things happening. And it's, that's, it's nice to have a, a forum or, or a place where you can just hear about it and just reflect and go, oh, that's really interesting. So, mm. yeah, so well, how else has life changed since then? Um, <laughs> probably tried to live a healthier lifestyle since then. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Less vodka shots and yeah, uh, tequila shots, what we get? Yeah, it, was, it was the first time I've ever been at a, a science communication event and someone's... Um, brought around a tequila on stage. So I believe that was one of um, Sophie Calabretto's students from Macquarie. Yeah. So she was, um, <laughs> she was certainly one of my favourite students when I heard about that. But yeah, um, um, yeah. So that, no, no, so that look, and they're the sorts of things that's quite fun. You speak to people about the sorts of ways you talk about your work, and we always think of science chats as being a little bit austere and a little bit serious sometimes. And sometimes that's not how it reflects the the day to day practice. So it's really fun to to have those slightly less formal conversations because mm-hmm. it probably reflects what we do on a day-to-day basis more than the really formal standing up in front of people trying to sound serious and important. Well, yeah, I feel like, I mean, science communication is very polished a lot of the time and people like your, I don't know, your documentaries or your radio segments that are very swish and make scientists sound... Yeah, uh, I, I guess it's one of those ones that's really hard to, to reconcile that it's a lot of... A lot of training goes into learning how to do science and be a scientist, and sometimes you lose sight of the fact that that strips you of your ability to speak to normal people. <laughs> and um, and so, so you, you do see people 
making complex phenomena relatively simple. And then there's always a bit of a backlash where people, you know, one of the criticisms of scientific communication is that people oversimplify complex things. And it's just, um, I think it's really interesting just to see the, the growth of the field and the growth of the different sorts of approaches that we've got. We've got some that are um, lots of um, bells and whistles and lights and mirrors, and you've got others that are still reasonably um, sophisticated, I guess, and, and austere, because that's effective for a bunch of different people too. So I think there's, there's real scope to have a whole lot of different approaches. So do scientists always have to be taken seriously? Oh, absolutely not, because you know, <laughs> some of them do really bad science for a start. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's one reason you wouldn't want to take you them seriously. You can do names if you like. It's, yeah. um, well, how long does the podcast go for? No, no, <laughs> how long you got? No, 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 no certainly. What, what, I, what I mean by that is just... Um, now, there, I mean, there is, you know, one of the, one, I'll answer that in two parts. One is, do you have to take scientists seriously? I think you, you do sometimes because part of the game is to actually realise that we spend a lot of time criticising each other. So that's, my, my comment was a throwaway comment before, but the reality of the day-to-day job is you spend an awful lot of time reading other people's work and, and criticising it and, and trying to um, see what's good about it and what's poor about it. And that's seen as one of the processes by which science gets better. But, you know, do scientists need to be taken seriously? I mean, it's just a job like any other job in a lot of ways and there's a lot of fun in it and I think you know if you speak to a lot of scientists it's 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 a tough job to do if you're not enjoying it because it's really competitive it's really challenging in lots of ways um so you've got to search for the the fun in the job and I think it's great if you can express that the fun parts to people because it's Mm. really um yeah there, there, there are elements of it that are really you're really quite privileged privileged to do it and it's great fun to to be doing but you know when I you know obviously People will see people being self-deprecating or making fun of their work, and they'll t- say, "Oh, we're not taking you quite as seriously." But um, I, my gut feeling is that scientists take themselves a little bit too seriously sometimes. <laughs> um, I think it's probably unhealthy because it, it, it sets up a barrier and makes it a lot less inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I enjoy I enjoy seeing the you know the humour in some of the stuff we do, and, and some of the stuff we do has really significant implications for people. And if you can find a better way to communicate that, it's great to find a way to do it so yeah so do we have to take no i don't think you have to take scientists too seriously i think we put ourselves on a pedestal we don't belong on sometimes so um <laughs> you know so, so i think it's reasonable sometimes to 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 attract a few of the, the slings and arrows and mm. and be criticized um having said that when that happens it's also important that we we defend ourselves so there's you know because there is a backlash towards science if you look at skepticism and contested science in lots of places everything from um well climate's an obvious one but there's, you know, you look at some parts of the US evolutions seen as contested science. There are lots of commentaries in the broader media about scientists being rent seekers and just, you know, living off grants and things mm. and not doing relevant things. So, yeah, so, you know, so it's a bit of a Goldilocks thing. I think we do need to be taken seriously, but not too seriously. So we need to be taken just the right amount of seriously. <laughs> so. And I do like your comment that as scientists ourselves need to take ourselves less seriously because particularly doing these podcasts I noticed that scientists are really worried about their public perception and whether people think that they're smart or that they know what they're doing I think we question ourselves so much that we get a little bit guarded oh well imposter syndrome is probably the classic example of that we we do get really worried about how people are perceiving us and whether we really belong in Mm. whatever company that that we're in this notion that um we're not as good as the people around us. And, and being guarded is, is part of it. There's a lot of 
challenges to speaking speaking openly in, in the community now. Everything with respect to backlashes against things that are perceived as being offensive or or being careful about what we say in public. Um, there are institutional challenges too. Um, for instance, if you're a government scientist, you're really limited in what you're allowed to say about your science. Mm. Good science would inevitably be open and transparent. But if you look at a lot of government scientists, um, I mean, in the US it's been particularly challenging. But in Australia it's the same. There's a lot of people that are unable to communicate their science openly without permission from someone further up the food chain in their organisations. And that's, you know, that's a really bad practice. I mean, we're mm. very lucky working in universities that there are fewer restrictions on what we can say, but that's a, a really sinister part of, of science in the modern era where you've got, I mean, in the private sector, you've got um, commercial things that can stop you from speaking. In the government sector, you've got political implications for mm. what you can say, and, and those things threaten your livelihood. So, yeah, so we do, we do worry about how, how, how we're perceived. I think it's, um, you know, and there, when I say we, that's, there's such a broad church of scientists. There's a bit, there's a bit of everything there. So, uh, But I, I, would, I would argue that you know, we, we do spend a lot of time being concerned about our, how we're perceived. And I think if, if you have a bit of levity about your work, you're certainly going to be perceived as less serious. But you've also got to be yourself. And, you know, and, I, and in terms of taking ourselves too seriously, I think there's really... Um, sinister well-being effects of people being over serious about their work mm. you know there's a culture of working long hours um of, of of sacrificing outside interests for work things and i think it's very destructive both to productivity but also creativity in mm. sciences so so i'm you know i wouldn't be, want to be evangelical about it but i think it's really important <laughs> that you, you that we realize that there are there are cultures in science that are terribly unhealthy and they relate to how seriously we take ourselves and it's not uncommon to hear if people are saying you need to work your six seven day week mm. um i expect you to see you in the lab at certain times and, and it's just it's, it's not i don't think it's a really healthy culture sometimes mm. that, that's common across lots of workplaces too but i think in science there's, there, there are there, there is a rich history of people um, treating people, particularly people that are lower down in hierarchies, with that kind of expectation. Mm, and I've lately, I've been feeling a lot of just the general vibe of an pessimism around scientists and their working lives and what it's like and dealing with universities and admin and all that stuff. And I wonder how much of it is just the, the behavioural patterns of just being bitter and jaded. <laughs> well, I've been here for over 23 years so you know I've, I've, I feel like I've seen it all now I'm bitter and jaded yeah look you know look because you have lots of students that you're now mentoring or yeah, have been mentoring for a long time and you yeah. don't want them going into a field mm. expecting the worst of it look the, the, the challenges that, that you face in science are quite significant it's a very competitive place to be that's something that mm. we don't often acknowledge up front and tell people that there's a lot of significant challenges there's rejections from papers rejections of grants um competing for limited jobs and that's the reality of of what science is like and that's it's actually been like that ever since i've been in it so this Mm. so that's not new we always look at you know at pessimism and, and and jaded things i think you know if you look at bureaucratic and managerial cultures they're pretty common across all sorts of workplaces now anyone that works in a big organization will throw their hands in the air at some stage and realise that the processes that they're dealing with are, are inefficient. And if you're working in a creative discipline like the sciences, it can be really frustrating to see the, the stifling of that. But that's, 
you know that you, you almost have to start practicing some sort of mindfulness about it and just take a deep <laughs> breath and go oh now these are the rules of the game and science is a game essentially and the, the rules change quite regularly but in this case um you know pessimism is a really interesting thing because you know you, you have to face up to an awful lot of losses when you're doing science in terms of um your you know winning grants which is seen as probably one of the, the great sort of um gatekeeping things is, mm. is one of the hard things papers get rejected for reasons that you don't understand sometimes um <laughs> We may speak about peer review afterwards, but there's a there's a sort of a, a real concern over the caliber of peer review. So these anonymous criticisms of your work that can lead to good work being banged on the head. Um, Pessimism is a really interesting one because working in conservation and, and, and ecology, we get, we get a double whammy of it because there probably is an overwhelming culture of negativity and environmental issues as well. And <laughs> so one of the things that's really fascinating is there's been a real push towards promoting conservation optimism, this notion mm. that we should actually celebrate the successes as well as the acknowledge that the failures, things like um, species in decline or environmental degradation. And I think it's a really healthy way to look at things so we do tend to look at environmental issues very much from a, a pessimistic and catastrophic um, perspective and you know some of the things that we do to manage the environment do lead to relatively you know, positive outcomes species coming back from the brink um, areas being restored and returning some sort of functionality both ecological functionality and returning some of the species that you might like so you know, so you do you do see those comments amongst say conservation biologists and ecologists a lot. This 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 negativity and the pessimism I think just comes partly from um. Oh, I don't, I'm not I'm not really sure where to, where to start with with where the pessimism comes from. I know looking at social media, I think you, you regularly we, many of us will decide to take a break from it because um. It can be I think quite a toxic <laughs> sludge pit sometimes of negativity and you know that's really unhealthy for all of us and we all can all fall into it and. You know, and I think you, it's, 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 you get this storm of it's a really competitive environment. There's limited resources. There's people that really like what they do or even love what they do who are, being, are finding it really hard to get the opportunity to do it. And all that can weigh quite heavily. And that's why, you know, sometimes in terms of taking yourself seriously, it is good to take a step back and, and look at it as a job and not perhaps um, get over invested in the... Um, the love of the job or the love of the game because it can be it can be quite cruel to you mm. when that, when that, you know if you've been in the game long enough you see it time and time again good people fall out of the system through just dumb luck and that's a really awful thing to watch yeah i often wonder about sort of imposter syndrome and self-esteem in scientists and wonder if it's a culture that creates those behavioral patterns or if it uh, sort of selects for people that already have <laughs> those tendencies, you know, from the constant rejections yeah. of papers and grants, do you start to feel like you're an imposter, or because it's that sort of a, a system it selects for people that yeah. get that get those rejections and go, ah, oh, yeah, they're right. Whereas someone who has mm. a higher self esteem might go, screw this, I'm going to do something else. Um, look, we're probably oversimplifying it by simply focusing on self esteem, but there's, <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, there's not, you know. You, you can look at the rejections you get, and that's the reality of, of a lot of the stuff we do. That you, you know, the, the most common thing is to get rejected, and you can see that as say confirming that you're not very good at stuff, or you can explain it away and, go, and accept sometimes that um, the process is very imperfect, and a lot of good stuff misses out. And I think one of the good things about being 
involved in, in both ends of the process, the numerous rejections and also um, assessing applications for various things is you realize that your confidence in assessing some of those things is always um, limited. You're pretty confident the people that win those things are worthy of them, mm. but you also acknowledge that a lot of worthy people miss out and that's simply a resource limitation. So, you know, there, there's a, you, so when you see it at that end, you realize that, you know, and it's horrifying, but dumb luck plays a big role in some of these things. And, <laughs> and the, the, the capriciousness of it is really frustrating to see because we treat science as being objective and mm. having all sorts of criteria. And it's, it's simply not. Some of it is, you, you just see things time and time again, little sliding doors moments where someone wins a grant, which then gives them the resources to do a project, which is then the building block for a career compared to someone who doesn't get it. And that's quite often the, the death knell of their career in science. And that's, mm. really, you know, all, and that's really frustrating, particularly from an academic perspective. Now, I know we talk about alternative careers in science and there are some real possibilities for people to move into a whole range of different things using the skill sets they've developed. But there's still a, a bit of a subculture of treating that as a failure, which is a really lousy yeah. subculture. But it's, um, and that's changing very quickly that people who are dropping out of the academic streams are and not feeling like they failed what they want to do. But I feel like that's um, a really healthy thing to start promoting, just this notion that the pathways, you know, really should be splaying out after you train as a scientist, not becoming more and more limited, which is historically how we've treated them. Mm. It's interesting you describe science as a creative field because people maybe don't realise that. And I think one of the great things for me has been, you know, I mean, for example, I sit here and I have a science podcast. I actually don't listen to a whole lot of science podcasts. I listen to podcasts from creative fields about filmmaking and music mm. and uh, arts and the parallels with how science and art happens are astounding. Yep. I, I think there's a, a really important recognition that science is a creative enterprise that's coming. And hopefully that's going to come with a recognition that science isn't the objective arbiter of knowledge that we often have treated as. I think there's been a, 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 I look at something like the use of the acronym STEM and how Mm. divisive that's been at at separating scientists, technology types, engineering types, and maths types. And if you had the extra M, some medical types too, (laughs) um, from, from the creative disciplines. Whereas I think science has historically always had a creative and a, um, an, an imaginative element, often with a, with a, and it's done in, under a, a culture and a philosophy of trying to test whether those ideas are, are worth testing. But it, it really hasn't, the, the creative elements of science are very rarely acknowledged. This notion that science is a process is very rarely acknowledged. We tend to teach science in our schools as a whole series of facts, whereas anyone that does it as their day job knows that it's basically an ongoing long term process of. <laughs> <laughs> trialing things, failing, trying different ideas, thinking through things, getting them criticised by your peers, and it's you know it's it's the creative process um, writ large. Whereas in schools, it tends to be a, a sweat of facts, and even in early parts of university. And then when you get to the other end of it, you realise that all the facts are pretty much at the you know tips of your fingers on a keyboard. So you're forever mm. on on Wikipedia trying to remember those facts because you start forgetting them as you get older. So, And, that, and that's, I think that's probably one of the failures of when we speak about science and communicate science. I think science communication still has a real investment in focusing on the outputs and the outcomes rather than the process by which we've developed that knowledge. And the process is probably more fun than the actual knowledge at the end because 
in terms of the process, if you do the experiments or do the work, by the time that work's been written up, peer reviewed and published, it's often one, two, three years old. Mm. And you've moved on to brand new projects since then. So by the time it actually gets perhaps public acknowledgement, it's probably not the latest thing that you're doing in your, your laboratory. <laughs> but you know, so, so there's a real lag between doing the work and thinking it through and having those really exciting times at the start and actually completing it. Like a lot of things, we, I mean, I think this is a, a universal across most disciplines. Is we all love starting new projects. We're not mm. very good at finishing them sometimes. <laughs> um, and and you know, the finishing part can be hard because that's where the I's get dotted and the T's get crossed. And I suppose some of the real, the, the careful parts of science get put in. Mm. We should probably talk about the science that you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I suppose. So you're an ecologist, and I talk to a yep. lot of ecologists on this podcast, and quite often they're, they're let's face it, they're, they're country folk. <laughs> they yes. like to spend as much time as they can out in the wilderness and, and amongst uh, their, their field. But I'm going to take a guess that you're, you're a city boy. I am a city boy. I grew up very close to the inner suburbs of Melbourne, and mm-hmm. I moved up to Sydney and... Um, I, mean, I am interested in going outside and you know, it's always lovely to look at, at natural parts of the world but one mm. of the, the things that's evolved in our work is we work on the ecology of cities and nature in cities and it's just been fascinating to realise just how animals and plants adapt to life in a, in a pretty hostile environment and the sorts of questions we can ask in those environments are quite fascinating and so we're, we're interested in, 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 in some of the ways in which animals and plants respond to urbanisation um, partly as a, as a selection pressure, but also we're interested from an environmental perspective because our work's grown from um, looking at the pressures that cities place on animals and plants, things like fragmentation of habitats or pollution going into areas, um, through to what the benefits of whatever can be left here are. And one of the, I think one of the fascinating things is not we started off the work focusing on what was lost as a consequence of, of urbanisation. Mm. The last five, ten years, we've started looking at how a bunch of animals and plants are making a living in cities and how they get through some of the real challenges of living in a city. And the bigger picture things for us have meant that we've started now working with a lot of um, people in the, um, the social sciences and the environmental humanities to look at the, things like the benefits of green space in cities to inhabitants, how nature connectedness for people living in cities affects their well-being, And it's been a real journey from um, a scholarly perspective to try and work outside of the classic scientific realms to try and learn how the humanities try and deal with those sorts of questions. So when push comes to shove, we're still really interested in the behaviour and the physiology and the responses of animals and plants to some of the pressures mm. of city life. But we've realised to take that work into a bigger picture. It's been fascinating to see just how the human dimension of life in cities influences nature and that's and that's been a journey too because when you work as a scientist you do get very hardwired with respects to how you think about questions and you realize that in other parts of say university or other parts of um of environmental studies there's other ways of doing things so an example would be i'm pretty hardwired and how we can do experiments how we can do studies and come up with an answer to things and yet i'll go to meetings with some of these other folk and someone will look into the air and go, oh, look, there's no right answer, really. And I'll just be sitting there going, yeah, there is. If you do it properly, you can get the right answer. You know? and, and so that's, you know, that's been a, I'm still pretty committed to that, that way of knowing. But um, there's, you know, there's just, it's just, that's sort of an interesting thing. But in terms of the, um, the work we do, we, 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 I'm interested in a range of different animals and plants. And we've probably moved away from some of the, the urbanisation as a negative influence effects 
animals and plants. We know that there's all sorts of catastrophic declines, but then this 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 notion that um, most people live in cities, managing green space in cities can enhance the livability and sustainability of these cities, and some sort of connection with nature can actually make things better for the people that live in cities means that we can actually start then saying, well, how are you know powerful owls still thriving in a city? How are our native pollinators still visiting flowers in cities? How are brush turkeys in Sydney charging through their neighbourhoods to try and um, rearrange people's gardens? What are, what are the things that make it possible for some things to persist and some things not to? So we're, we're, um, we, we have a, gr- a largest group of people that look at a range of different sorts of questions. And, I'm, you know, and some of the things you find is you can do really fascinating fundamental ecology um, just in these urban, these highly modified systems. A, re- a really nice example is um, one of the things I, my, my earliest work was insect plant interactions based. I'm interested in a classic hypothesis, which is why is the world green? This, this notion <laughs> that the, the world is dominated by plants in terms of biomass, in terms of sheer diversity. There are you know, millions of species of insects trying to exploit this enormous resource, but the plants seem to be fighting back and and doing a better job and avoiding being defoliated by these insects. And there's a whole lot of interesting interactions, everything from how plants defend themselves, how animals get around those defences. And we've applied that to cities. And one of the, the fascinating things is we've been looking at um, the way in which ecological interactions get affected by cities. And one of the, the really nice stories is that in a lot of our cities, we've lost, our, in, in Australia anyway, we've lost our small insectivorous birds. So these tiny birds spend their life running around trying to eat insects because they're, they're basically trying to maintain their metabolism, play an incredibly important role in, in regulating insect numbers. They're just spending their days flitting around um, leaves trying to eat whatever insects they can. What happens with urbanisation is that certain um, things conspire to make it hard for small birds to persist. That's often things like cats, the loss of habitat, and also the introduction of um, noisy miners, this native bird that essentially bullies the other birds out of the areas. We've been able to do some really nice work that shows that when you lose these small insectivorous birds, your insect numbers go up massively and if you put your thinking caps on, your um, plants suffer dramatically as a consequence of the elevated numbers of insects so the, the health of your urban forest declines. And it's a really nice opportunity to do some basic ecology looking at what regulates um, insect-plant interactions, what actually helps um, influence this, this notion of why is the world green. Um, to try and apply it in those sorts of contexts. And then, then it gets even more complicated because we've um, found that one of the ways of trying to maintain the small insectivorous birds in these areas is to keep the habitat that's provided by lantana, a really quite an insidious weed that has a lot of effects <laughs> on, on the vegetation. So you, you, your gut feeling would be like, we've got this massive weed in these natural areas, these urban bushland remnants. Should we get rid of it? You're going, oh, yeah, probably. But nearly every bush regeneration person we speak with says, oh, they actually, you know, they pointed out to us that it plays an incredibly important role in providing a habitat for these tiny birds that are nibbling away on insects. Mm. And it's just, you know, so it makes it a really interesting managerial problem for people who are managing landscapes. It's a fascinating ecological problem. And it's, a, you know, and it's a, as, as you mentioned, we don't have to go too far to do the work. And you do mm. see some, some remarkable things. Um, like, for instance, just a couple of nights ago, I was essentially in a drain about a couple of kilometres from the university, so about five kilometres from the city centre, looking at a tunnel which had a lot of really dubious mattresses, bottles and, and things in it. And it also supported a, a colony of the eastern bentwing bat, which is a, an endangered species living in the middle 
of a of the city in this this mass this you know, graffiti tunnel that doesn't look anything like a natural limestone cave, but it's persisting in the city. And it's I mean, we were just looking at them because there's the potential for them to be um, affected by development nearby. And these bats were about to go on a flight to um, about 100 kilometres away to their maternal roosts where the mothers go and have their babies and then presumably come back um, mm. at the end of that, that of the summer to come back to um, these areas. So, so it's, see, there are surprises everywhere you look. So we've probably culturally ignored looking at, at cities in the past because, you know, like you say, everyone wants to go outside and go to the nice mm. places. Like, why would you work in a city if you can go out to the desert or the rainforest mm. or the reef? But there's, you know, some of the most fascinating stories we can see are happening right under our nose. So there's, you know, thousands of great stories like that everywhere. So, you know, we, we focus on insects and plants and, and birds and bats and things and spiders. But, you know, we're interested in the whole shebang, really. That's, that's, that's one of the great things about this opportunity is we're not focused on one or two very limited systems. We're trying to look at the whole package of biodiversity out there. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in this idea about people's connection to green spaces mm. and how important it is for health and well-being is that yeah. like is that just to do with people lizard brands needing i don't know green light hitting their eyes or something yeah. what, what do we think is the connection there well look there's a massive body of work now looking at an, it's environmental psychology and looking at things like connectedness to nature links between well-being and, and one of the things that's that's really fascinating is it's it's probably a, a global phenomenon, particularly in more developed parts in the world where the, 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 the links between wellbeing have been demonstrated by looking at, um, say, canopy cover in green space and um, various public health statistics. There's also quite a bit of um, uh, more, more qualitative work which looks at trying to identify how people are self-identifying or self-reporting their wellbeing with respects to um, exposure to nature or being able to do certain things and you know this is everything from I suppose um, you know, forest bathing this, this this concept from Japan which is something <laughs> from the 70s where people were you know being virtually prescribed this go out take your mm. shoes off and sit out in the forest and just relax there's there, there's a whole lot of, of, of possible reasons that different people have and, the, and, the, and a lot of the work that I've been exposed to recently and, and the work that we've done is finding some unusual things um one of the ones that's been really interesting has been that some of the well-being benefits aren't tied to what's actually in the areas that we're working with, but it's tied to what people think is there. So people's perceptions of, of environmental quality are more important than the classical ecological measures of what constitutes right. quality. And that's interesting from a, an ecological perspective because we're, we're quite a conservative group of people in terms of um, we want the bits of nature to look like what they would have looked like without any sort of human footprint. And in a city, that's near impossible. So sometimes the, the work that's been coming out of a, a, a diverse range of parts of the planet, everywhere from Israel to the UK to Australia, is that if people have a connection to it locally and like it, even if it's not some sort of pristine chunk of, of, of environmentally valuable um, areas for conservation with threatened species and the like, People get a lot of value out of it. So, and then there's a lot of work that looks at um, there's links to the the, well, the, the mental health, the physical health. There's um, um, house prices are linked to it, which in some parts of the world are seen as a good thing. <laughs> I know in Sydney, when you mentioned that house prices can increase if you re-green your cities, a lot of the 
the politicians are a bit less reluctant to promote that as a good thing. Um, but, you know, and there's also a lot of services that are provided, just really um, core services like cooling down cities, like um, urban um, greening can be used to, to battle um, urban heat island effects, these effects where cities tend to capture heat and warm up their surrounding areas. So you can help make these cities more livable by just having plantings that help cool down the city and make them a, a nicer place to, to sleep at night. Um, that's really interesting too from a social um, an equity perspective because what tends to happen is the greener suburbs, and again, this is sort of a global phenomenon, um, the greener suburbs tend to be the slightly wealthier suburbs. Mm. So this access to nature is seen as an equity issue that can actually really enhance um, the lives of people that don't have much of it. So, And when we speak about connections, there's concerns over, say, kids. And I'm not going to go on a rant about kids these days and, <laughs> and their devices. But um, you know, there's, there's concerns about things like, I think it's been phrased as, as nature deficit disorder, this notion that children don't get the same opportunities to play outside and have free creative play um, the way they would have, say, 30, 40, 50 years ago, owing to, you know, I suppose, the pace of modern life, parents having... You know, we get involved in an arms race to organise our children and have structured activities. And there's a school of thought that this, this opportunity just to sit outside and engage with nature isn't quite as strong anymore. And you know, so there are sorts of things that can happen if you've got nature near you. So we talk about it as things like um, exposure to everyday nature. There's chances that you can just engage with a tree, a flower, a bird, you know, watching a you know, um, you know, if you don't like cyclists, it's quite fun to watch magpies sweep cyclists. You know, you know so, no, <laughs> sorry, sorry to all the cyclists out there. But you know, you you, you know, you see that you see some of the behaviours that animals um, and plant, or not plants so much, but the you know the, the 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 things you see can be quite engaging. You see things that are really unusual, and again, this is one of the privileges of being in biology. You, you start to notice them, and you, you you take them for granted, but. A good example for me is that every year I get asked about um, an insect called a mole cricket, which is an unusual mm. animal that's got these massive front legs that look like giant forearms, which it uses for burrowing. And I often get people sending in photos saying, oh, this, I've just found this, this animal in our garden. Is this a new species? Is it unusual? And, you know, and, and if you've never seen them before, they're really quite primal. And they're quite, you know, they're about what, two centimetres long. And they're quite fascinating. And you realise that when you, you, talk, you, you, you just reply to the email and send them a few stories about them and you explain what they do for a living and how they, you know, their biology works. It's quite fascinating how people look at something which is quite creepy if you've seen it for the first time and they end up really liking it. Mm. Mm. It's very interesting how we, we think people are almost filling this niche the, and finding ways to have this connection. And I, I have this idea that's been running through my head that people are... <laughs> I wonder if people are actually using things like video games to fill this niche because <laughs> there's these video games and I'm, I'm one of those people that have played them where you will jump on this video game and spend six hours going around picking berries <laughs> in a digital world <laughs> and that is somehow a, a good way to spend your day or you know you're you're chopping wood or just yes. walking across a grassy field and it's stuff that you don't get the opportunity to do in a modern world, are you psychologically filling that desire in artificial ways? I'm sure we, we psychologically fill many desires in artificial <laughs> ways. But it's, um, uh, 
you know, it's interesting. <laughs> no, no, I'm not sure we should not sure we should go there, but um, <laughs> but there's real. Op- yeah, look, that, that's a really interesting observation. I mean, most of the games I'm exposed to involve running around with your arm pointing out shooting things. So it's um, <laughs> yeah, which is which, which, which is which isn't fulfilling any of my desires. But it's um, um just wanted to get that on the record. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's, you know, those sorts of you know, all those slow movements. You hear about slow food and just slowing down your life. I mean, we always get concerned. With, with some of the, the ways in which mod, you know, modern life stresses were overconnected with respects to social media and email and work and things like that. And then if you look at the, our capacity to get information about all sorts of, of things, you know, sometimes those opportunities to just have a, a, an escape, whether it's mm. a, you know, a, a real walk or a virtual walk, I mean, it sounds like an episode of Black Mirror, but it's, you know, <laughs> you know, those, those virtual reality experiences can be fun. And, and I, I guess... Having no evidence to support, I could, I could say, hey, it sounds like a reasonable theory, Jones. So, so. well, I mean, it would make sense if you've got some sort of instinctive part of your brain that if you are not sort of working to fulfill your resource needs, you get you get anxious, and you know, doing simple things like cooking your own food can make you less anxious mm. than buying food. I wonder if there's there's just some sort of little part of our lizard brain that likes being reminded that we're looking after ourselves. That could, I mean, again, that's probably not, I'm, I, I, I'd, I'd say that I don't, I have no real idea, but because I'm getting over imposter syndrome, I'd say, yeah, that's probably quite right. And also there's just that, probably an even simpler explanation is that opportunity just to escape a little bit and do something quite different. Cause you see mm. the, the restorative value of being outside in real nature is, is again, it's a, it, it sounds a bit flaky, but it's such a, it's almost a bomb proof um, bit of evidence now that people really keep finding that this chance to be outside or this chance to do these sorts of sit down, stare at a tree, stare at the ocean, whatever it is, um, it, it works overwhelmingly for a large number mm. of people. Now there are, there are probably some flip sides to that too. If you're, I don't know, in the ocean, you get bitten by a shark or you're in the, forest you get bitten by a snake or a tick you know you probably now there are some negatives from some of these things too but overwhelmingly there's a really good body of evidence that says that um humans get a benefit out of those sorts of opportunities and that that takes us all the way back to some of the work we do on how do you manage to um keep these animals and plants in the city because it's it's a bit of a battle sometimes there are a lot of competing demands and there's a lot of stresses i mean cities are hostile places for Mm. nature to persist so that's why it's such a fun thing to do because you, you look at where some of these animals and plants live and you think, how are you managing to make a living here? This seems like a ridiculous <laughs> thing to do for a, a bird, a spider, a plant. So, yeah. yeah. So green cities then, are they, are they viable ecologically? What, what's our thoughts on that long term? Are they viable ecologically? So yeah, can, I mean, it's can, kind of a recent phenomenon. Yeah, yeah can so. nature persist in cities? Um. Yeah, it can, but it can't persist in the way that we might have wanted it to, to, to be, say, in the old days, we had a very limited perception on, on what was valuable and what wasn't. There's certain plants and animals that will move into those cities regardless of what we do. Rats are a great example. They're, mm. they're here. They're, I would say that they're, 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 they're such a strongly human-associated species, now, things like black rats and the like, that they're, they're going to be here regardless. So. There's certain, there's certain plants that just have this enormous capacity to move into a place and evade and persi- invade and persist. Mm. Um, but in terms of green cities, I think that the, 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 the groundswell of support for trying to treat 
green infrastructure, the same as say grey infrastructure. Like we need, you know, we need roads, public transport, all that stuff. And there's a, a worldview now that, you know, we can make better cities by including green infrastructure into them. So if you ever, you know, if, you can, if you're listening to this and you go and Google future cities, mm. you get two kinds of images. One is trees, or oh, sorry, plants covered in, oh, sorry, plants, you get buildings covered in green roofs, green walls. And the other thing is you get are these dystopian grey cities with you're many, many high rise. And, and I, think, yeah. I think there's a really nice mid, mid, mid range in there, you know. So, mm. we, you know, it, you know, it comes to I don't know, issues like, say, densification. When we talk about growing cities, we know that people are moving into cities at a massive rate. The world's more urbanised than it's ever been. It's going to get more urbanised, partly because there's opportunities for people in their financial and, and just and, and you know, employment, and you know, the quality of life is likely to be better than some of the the more rural areas in terms of um, opportunities. So then, how do you, if, you, if you accept that the cities are going to keep getting bigger, how do you manage to make them bigger? And maintain those, those mm. whatever um, natural bits you might like, so you, you can become denser, or you can spread out more. And they've both got their pros and cons. Um, I think there's a, a, a massive push to try and make things denser now, mm. and then try and accommodate the, the transport needs and the green needs. And you see that in different parts of the world now, where there's, there, there, there is this recognition that this access to some of these these, these natural places can make a massive difference. So. Um, yeah, is it, is it, they're definitely viable. You've got to change your bar for what you want things to be. There are certain animals and plants that aren't going to persist in cities. There's some that shouldn't persist in cities probably because they're, <laughs> um, you know, the human-wildlife conflict is a really significant issue. Like, as much as we all love big carnivores, they're, they're often incompatible with mm. humans. You know, but, but, we, you know, but you don't want a world without big carnivores. They're relatively rare. They're... They're, you know, charismatic animals, but you know, you can't. We can't manage. Say, um, a good example would be in, in Mumbai the, or in India. There's lots of, you know, the notion of leopards moving back into cities is causing mm. potential human wildlife conflict. You know, and that's, you know, that, that, that as much as I love leopards, I don't want one living <laughs> really close to me because they're, they're they're big cats that can cause a lot of damage to humans. So it's probably, you know, but then. It, so there's always, it's not quite as sophisticated as you keep planting stuff, get the animals back and everything will be great. But there, there is a real incentive for if we're trying to plan for cities for the future to try and make sure that we do, um, yeah, make them, make them better. And, 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 it's, and it's hard to, because it's outside the political cycle. The idea of greening a city is great, but, you know, trees we plant now will benefit people in 20 years or 30 mm. years. There's a... A lovely quote I think is attributed to the ancient Greeks that um, great men plant trees whose shade they'll never sit in. Mm. And, and that's just getting this notion that, you, you know, the, the investment you're making is often going to be benefited, benefiting a future generation, not this current one. And, and that's, you know, that's actually not a hard sell to a lot of people. A lot of people go, oh, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's not, it, it, it makes sense. Trees take time to grow. No, one's, <laughs> no one disputes that. And, and, and so, that, so that's sort of... Um, yeah, the, the challenge is getting it right. So they also make sure that people can actually have somewhere to live because you look at homelessness around the world. There's certainly an urgent need in most parts of the world for um, affordable housing. And so if you're starting to use land for parks and gardens and things, that you know, adds to the cost too. So it's, it's, it's not an easy juggle, but I think that the, the, the trajectory of change is that people saying yeah, a, a better city of the future has natural elements to it and we need to work out how best to incorporate them. 
And I feel like, is Sydney doing relatively well? I mean, just when I travel, I come back to Sydney yeah. from another city and it just seems a lot greener. Yeah, yeah. Sydney's a remarkably green city for a bunch of reasons. Um, there's some interesting work that shows that for, for a range of reasons, um, street trees and parks were planted quite extensively in the 60s and 70s mm. and, and the benefits of that regreening are, are coming to fruit now, literally. And you've got... You know, things like your bats moving in and the like. So just from a, a, a street perspective, we're a relatively green city. Some recent work um, looking at essentially at, um, extracting data from Google Street View had, I think, Sydney ranked as one of the most green cities based on street trees along with Vancouver, just All on right. simply looking at the overall canopy cover in those areas. But the, Sydney's got sort of a double whammy, if you like, um, in that we've got a lot of remarkably important natural legacies really close to the city. Mm. Um, if anyone's been to Sydney and taken the ferry from Circular Quay to Manly, you'll, you'll see a whole lot of headlands that are national parks. And, mm. and, the, and the story behind those is quite amusing in some ways because we've got those national parks not out of some sort of far-sighted, we're not going to develop this incredibly valuable real estate mm. um, and keep it as park. We've got it because we were Australians seem to have been scared of foreigners forever, forever basically. So um, it all used to be it all used to be defence land. So there's all these gut, oh, these, yeah. these um, bunkers throughout um, many of these national parks around the harbour. Um, the defence, oh, the Australian government gave it to the National Park Service many years back. So these areas are now national parks, but it's sort of a, a wonderful accident of history. I mean, the motivations notwithstanding, it's an incredible legacy to have a global city with these really nice natural areas so close. And I mean, it's one of the reasons we've got things like powerful owls, these these large owls who are um, spending their nights flying around the city, picking off rats and possums and, mm. and even occasionally the odd, the odd um, baby koala on the outskirts of the city. And, <laughs> um, you, know, and you know, at night when you realise these owls are flying through and doing this, you just, you know, it's, it's remarkable to have a, a city that can support these sorts of things. So Sydney as a city has got a really remarkable natural legacy uh, it's very patchy, though. So I mentioned the equity issues and the like. There are certain parts of the city that are renowned for being leafy, and there are other parts of the city that are relatively unleafy. And, mm. and you know, they're often in the places that have a lower socioeconomic status, and they're often in areas that are relatively warm compared to the coastal areas. So there's a double whammy there that you could actually make the cities more livable for those people by planting those areas and helping essentially cool down those areas and at a time where um climate change and urban heat island effects are likely to conspire there's you know one of the, the battlegrounds we're going to be dealing with that will be urban greening and urban vegetation so mm. now when we did our live podcast a couple of weeks ago you also expressed some somewhat controversial views on cats in <laughs> in australia yeah. Yeah. <laughs> would you like to clarify them now <laughs> I could either clarify them or double down. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, look, you know, it, 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 look, it is an interesting um, conversation. Feral cats are a really significant threat to a lot of fauna mm. in Australia, and there's a, a rich understanding of the effects of those cats on a lot of those fauna, but there's a, probably a slightly different question to be dealt with in parts of the city. Um, Let's see. I think there's a few things to comment on cats. One is that the, the, the national approach to setting a, a body count as a conservation target, which is what we've had with our 
uh, killing 20 million cats in five years mm. program. I think it's a really lazy way to articulate a conservation goal. <laughs> I think there's, there's probably a, a more effective way to try and understand. I think the conservation goal should essentially be set in terms of the, the, the outcomes of, that, of those controls mm. rather than simply killing 20 million cats. So that's, that's sort of a, um, I think. So I'm, I'm, I, think, I think that, that having said that, I think there's a really important effort to control them. In cities, one of the questions we're often asked is should people own cats or let them out? And there's, mm. um, look, it's a really difficult thing because you know, there, there's a lot of work that shows the benefits of companion animals for people. Mm. Um, as was alluded to in the, in the Camelot Lounge um, event, I am a cat owner. <laughs> um, and so should you have them in the city? They're, they're likely to have impacts. They'll definitely take birds. They'll kill lizards. They'll do a whole mm. range of things. But in terms of their impact on the environment in cities and on fauna in cities, unless you're in an area that's got a particularly vulnerable or sensitive community, so on the peri-urban area or on the outskirts of the city, mm. I think if, you, if you've got a sexed cat that's running around, even if it's running over, you know, you know, kilometres, we know that animals that are tagged in cities wearing collars spend an awful lot of time roaming far further than their owners think. Mm. There's some really great work in New Zealand that's shown that just how wide, wide-ranging cats in urban areas are compared to um, what their owners think they're doing. Mm. But yeah, my, my opinion is um, they're a massive threat to, uh, in feral cats in particular, a massive threat to our fauna. I think their importance in cities is probably fairly limited compared to the other pressures that animals and plants are facing. Mm. So I can sleep at night or, <laughs> with my cats. There is yeah. definitely mm. a, a cat mm. owner sort of psychology thing. I mean, I own a very large dog that I know has taken you know, native birds out of the backyard. And, you know, the ones that I've seen are just the ones that I know of type mm. of thing. And I'm, I'm happy to admit that. But I feel like I talk to lots of cat owners. When you bring up this stuff, they go, oh, no, not Moggy. He's too slow. Or he never leaves yeah. the backyard, you know. He always knows where home is, that type of stuff. Uh, I think deluded cat owners are a, a universal. I've read work from the <laughs> States, New Zealand, and Australia, where I think, you know, we all, we're, you know, it's almost like the, the not all cats movement. I think it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, the, the, yeah, the, the, so I've been a bit inconsistent, but I think, yeah, in, in, in certain parts of the country, they're a, a catastrophe, no, literally. Catastrophe. Yeah, so that was. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, but. Um, but in the cities, I think, you know, they're, they're part of that milieu of stuff that lives here. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I don't mind. I mean, I, I like having them. I think they're interesting animals. Mm. You know, I, don't, I won't get started on the differences between cat owners and dog owners. But that's, um, <laughs> or cat and dog people. But there's, look, there's really, um, you know, the, the work's unequivocal in terms of their impact on the environment and on, on the fauna and flora and, and, and as a threatening process. I, I just, I, I get frustrated with, you know, I think there's, there's a lazy scholarship and lazy science behind the whole setting a body count as a conservation goal, which is what we've done as a as, as a nation. And mm. I, I think measuring the impact of that would be reasonable, like how many how a populations where cat control has been applied, rebounding. But um, yeah, I, I, I think in cities there's a lot of other. There's just so many. There's just this this, this ridiculous milieu of things affecting um, life in the city. So I think cats are part of it. But I think you know. Yeah, you know, we're probably humans are probably a lot more destructive than um, and our, and our footprint are probably more destructive. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 you got to pick your battles, probably. <laughs> oh, you certainly do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I also wanted to ask, uh, taking things back to science communication, oh, 
I want to ask about an event you did a while ago where you took a crack at being a stand-up comic. Ah. How did that go? Well, I thought it went fantastically. <laughs> um, uh, it was the most terrifying talk I've ever given, and it's probably the most rewarding talk I've ever given because it was... So it was what, a science talk, but... It, 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 was, a... it was part of a thing called Bright Club, which is where scientists try and do stand-up comedy to communicate their science. <laughs> in a funny way. And one of the things that was really interesting is if you go to enough conferences or seminars, you'll realize that one of the ways in which we engage with our audiences professionally is we often do have elements of humor in our talks. That's a really common thing in science. Mm. You know, it's very rare to go to, to talks where someone doesn't have an engaging element to their work and, and you know, whether it's you know, usually often with a little dig at themselves or a sense of humor. But it was the first time I've ever tried to give a talk where I was actually deliberately trying to be funny. <laughs> like, you know, because yeah, you, know, you knew you could say something funny as part of a science talk. Yeah, but saying something science pun or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but saying something sciencey as part of a fun talk was really hard. <laughs> so um, it was one of, you know, so you, know, we, you, you wrote a really detailed script. And, and, and it's probably taught me a little bit about science communication in terms of um, trying to get on message. Um, we're trained to try and say, try and write a script where you've got a, a potential laugh every 15 to 20 seconds. Wow. Um, so you and, had training in how to be uh, a yeah. stand-up comedian. Was yeah, 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 just just some insights into what might be better. So it was, it was and it was really in, interesting to do because, and then you look at some of the material you've got, and one, you know, I, I spoke about some of the things in the insect world, which you know, if you, those of us that are, you know, you're obviously you're familiar with the insect world, but <laughs> you, if you start putting the insect world in a human context, you realise insects are just really weird, and they do things that really aren't acceptable socially um and so so part of part of part of part of the real challenge was that was to try and um talk about things like um traumatic insemination which is things that some say bed bugs and some mm. mirrored bugs do where they inseminate the females through it with a, a large sword-like penis through the abdomen rather than <laughs> um you know through the genitals and but do that in a way that wasn't creepy or, or you know because you know, I, I think it's you know because i was really cognizant that I didn't want to make something funny like that. I mean, I wanted it to be funny, but not creepy funny. And then, you know, mm. there's, there's a bunch of wasps that copulate with um, orchids because mm. they think the back end of the flower looks like a, the back end of a female wasp. And it's just trying... And so it's stuff that's... It's funny material, but you realise you could make it creepy. But in all honesty, just... I, I was terrified doing it. I thought my heart was going to bang through my chest just before <laughs> it. And, and it was really... It's quite exhilarating. So, and it wasn't something I would have thought I would have done, but I was so glad I had the opportunity to do it. And mm. I think it's as a, you, know, you forget that increasingly science communication gives you gives you all sorts of opportunities to talk to people outside your echo chamber. So that was that was really nice. That was a, the cover to I think eleven thirty at night slot on a Wednesday in the Spiegel tent. <laughs> so, so I got, you know, they, it was, and it was, it was all exciting. They gave you one of those lanyards that said you were an artist. So that was good. Um, <laughs> I've had the opportunity to do talks in, you know, you do talks in pubs as well. And some of the pubs I've spoken in have been famous rock and roll pubs. So I can now claim to have appeared on the stage of certain pubs. And, <laughs> and again, that's when, when you get old, you start, you'll, you'll, you'll take anything that you can use to sort of note yourself amongst your friends. Um, and, and, you know, and, and it, you know, speaking to radio or speaking to newspapers broadly, you start realising that every scientist has a story that really ought to be told to a broader community. And I don't think we, we communicate that to our peers enough. Like the number of times I've spoken on radio or to the paper and someone 
in my outside world has heard it or seen it and gone, oh, that sounds amazing. Your job sounds really interesting. And you, I can guarantee a lot of scientists get really bogged down in their day-to-day stuff. And, mm. you know, we forget how interesting and lucky we are to talk about, you know, why plants try to stop caterpillars eating them or why, um, why ants do certain things when it's about to rain. All these sorts of things are great stories. And, and we have so many, and this is, I'm thinking about ecology, but I remember, you know, when we had the opportunity to speak, you know, with mathematicians or mm. our stem cell researchers, the broader community has, has a passion for hearing more about it, particularly if we can make it more accessible. So, so the, comedy, the short thing is the comedy thing was great fun. I was terrified. And, I, and, I, and it, was, it was quite a few years ago, but as you can tell, I'm still trading on it. So, um, you know, so that's, um, and, that, and that's sort of, you know, and that's just a fun thing to do. You get these opportunities to, to, to do this work. And I think, you know, you don't, it's, it's, it's uncommon to say to have, say, in business or lawyers Mm. or you know get those sorts of opportunities to have a specific comedy tonight well that probably would might be quite lawyers doing stand-up comedy i don't know (laughs) maybe depressing yeah (laughs) Yeah, but but, you know what what really resonated that was one of the it was a real confidence thing for me because what it does is it makes you realize that you've got stories that a lot of people want to hear and Mm. we shouldn't we shouldn't be ashamed to to tell them and you know the number of times i've been watching cricket matches and seen say a giant spider being dragged across the lawn by a, um, a big orange wasp. And then I've, ex- I've explained to people that this wasp has paralysed the spider. It's still alive and it's going to lay an egg inside it mm. and bury it. And people are amazed at, you know, at those sorts of nature things. Or um, it's this time of year, it's spring in Sydney and channel-billed cuckoos are turning up these ridiculous-looking birds where they make this, this funny noise that are going to try and lay their eggs in the nests of currawongs. So mm. these poor currawongs are going to raise a channel build cuckoo chick instead of theirs and you see them often you know the, the currawongs are often flying around them and there's this, this god awful kind of noise and you're explaining to people what's happening and you know it's happening beneath our noses and people love to hear that stuff and i think there's a great opportunity to do it so mm. yeah so but short short answer yeah it was great fun doing the comedy joe <laughs> you don't get many short answers do you i just realized it's, uh... it's good long long form podcast it's yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, it makes me wonder though if you're talking about the way people can reconnect with nature and by doing things like from your forest bathing or just getting mm. outside. Is, is that something that also helps just hearing stories about natural history, watching a wildlife documentary, listening to a podcast? Do you reckon that does yeah. the same thing? I, 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 it all works for different people. That's the thing. You know, look, I mean, the, the, the documentaries are the classic example. I think someone like David Attenborough's legacy is, is extraordinary in our broader community because of the caliber of documentaries produced the people is inspired to make other documentaries too mm-hmm. steve Irwin's probably another one in that in that realm where you've just got this there are different ways to engage with nature and so just hearing a little bit more about it and, and that little bit of knowledge makes such a difference mm-hmm. to it's it's like almost anything as soon as you get a bit of an understanding of how something works that these things can start to get a lot more interesting i mean a, a parallel for me would be um sports i had no understanding of once i'd learned a little bit about some of the rules all of a sudden i started engaging with them and it's only a little bit of un- and it's the same with different parts of nature um one of the things that's been really powerful has been this opportunity to encourage people just to go and sit in a spot and stare at stuff stare at flowers stare at birds and almost let nature come to you because a lot of our engagement with the outdoors involves some sort of activity like walking from a to b mm-hmm. um we've, we've done a few things which involves staring at cat food and honey and seeing which ants turn up with um, <laughs> community groups and people have loved the whole story about oh, the fights that the ants are having over the resource 
the fact that everyone fighting is a female. You know, that, that, you know mm. these, these, these things that we take for granted, just, you know, you know, when, you know this notion of ant workers and how, how you know, what, you know, looking at the, you know, the, the male-female roles in the ant world. And you have these stories with people and you realise we, we, we go off into our, our specifics of our jobs and our lives very, very quickly in life and we either forget or don't hear about some of these great stories. So, yeah, so that's... And, and then, you know, when, when we look at the other sciences, like I'm in, in awe of the people that are, you know, literally curing cancers around mm. here. And you, you go, you work at a university and every corner has someone doing something quite remarkable, yet you, you sometimes don't take the time to remember that or, no, or notice that. So there's, there's some, you know... The real, you know, there's some extraordinary stories out there, and I think we haven't done as good a job as we should telling people um, mm. how good we are and how important <laughs> we are. To, well. to be to be perfectly blunt about, it, I think we have an extraordinary community of scientists in Australia that do very good work and very important work, and I think we've done a poor job telling the people who are paying it, paying mm. for it, mainly the taxpayers, how good it is. So, you know, or, or when I say telling them, actually explaining to them because it's, it's not a, it's not easy sometimes there's a bit of a you know some, sometimes it takes a bit of a, it's a bit of a journey to explain it to people but i i've lost count of the number of times that people have, gone, have really engaged once they've had the the chance to hear it i've also had people whose eyes have glazed over because you know that's <laughs> one of the problems is is that you get us talking about our pet things and yeah you know we don't perhaps pick on, well we don't pick up on the cues <laughs> you, know, you know when people when, checking their watches when, when, when and checking their watches losing net control <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know so all, all those sorts of things so but, but yeah so, so i'm not you know if you get the chance though to talk about it and if it's something you're comfortable doing you should do it because mm. It is hopefully reassuring for someone like myself who does lots of natural history research. You know, imposter syndrome kind of kicks in and goes, well, I'm not doing anything applied, I'm not doing conservation, I'm not developing products. Is there a, yeah. a, a contribution to society immediately yeah. from this? And I'd like to think mm-hmm. there is in just that way. It, it's important for people to know this stuff. Well, well, natural history is a really interesting one because in the ecological work about, say, 20 or 30 years ago, um, we were still pretty passionate about natural history and also basic biology and the applied ecology or the ecology that had a relationship to land management and useful stuff was pretty much at the kids' table for a while at the meetings. <laughs> and there's been a real, there's been a real um, switch towards embracing managerial um, ecology or trying mm. to do stuff that's applied and useful. And it's much easier, much more easily funded and supported. I think it's a lot less interesting scientifically, mm-hmm. um, but particularly in the Australian context, it's it, you are sometimes made. To, if you're doing a basic piece of research, mm. the impact of your research is seen as lighter. If you're doing natural history or understanding how the natural world, world works, compared to saying this is how we can manage green space in cities better. So I think one of the beauties of my job is I get to. I like being useful. It makes it easier to, to, to start the conversation with people. So I'm not saying that applied research isn't useful, but you know, my, my rationale for getting excited about science and interested in science wasn't to be useful. It was really, it was really <laughs> understanding. You know, it all goes back to understanding how the natural world works. And mm. I'm still enthralled by the, you know, you know, how do caterpillars make a living eating plants? Because plants are garbage to eat. Mm. You know, they're really hard to digest. They're defended by all sorts of chemicals. They're physically hard to break open. And that, and that constant battle, you know, and if you're a caterpillar, you've got two things. You've got a food that doesn't want to be eaten and you are a incredibly, you know, 
digestible piece of food for a whole bunch of other things, <laughs> spiders, birds. And, and so I, I like looking, you know, that, that story is still part of what I, I really enjoy doing. I like looking, you know, behaviours of animals, just stunning the complexities. And so I think there's, there's a real benefit in, you know, I think doing both types of science, James. So mm. in terms of imposter syndrome, I think that one of the real challenges is that we get very mired in our, in our, and siloed in our, our little world. So we start looking at what's being successful because if you look at, again, social media, we very rarely promote all the failures. We promote all our successes. So you look at something that's been successful and you go, oh, wow, they've got some money to do this because they, they're doing this useful thing. Or, mm. um, I think and that's one of the beauties of conferences too and, and, and the personal side of science and the personal dimension is that when you go and speak to your community and speak to people from other institutions, um, you find out that everyone's in the same boat Mm. You know, we, 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 we've got a bit of everything. We have got massively overconfident people who could do with a dose of imposter syndrome. But, um, <laughs> but you know, overwhelmingly, you know, we, we fail a lot. And, mm. and, and it's great to have those conversations where everyone just realises that, you know, that that's the norm and we just have to work out ways of celebrating our, our little mm. successes along the way. And hopefully you can just keep riding the wave until your field of choice comes back in vogue again and... Is high impact. <laughs> oh, look, and, and it's part of your evolution as a scientist too. I think you, you do, you know, yeah, you, you can you can hope that your your field will come back in vogue, but you know, it's, um, but there's also just um, you know realizing that change is inevitable, and you've got to mm. try and track some of it sometimes, and and see how you can fit in. Like science has become a lot more collaborative in the last twenty years than it was mm. when I started. So there's much bigger groups, and that means that there's probably going to be more emphasis on people's capacity to work with other people so in the old days you would talk about lone geniuses and all that kind of stuff i think those days are past now we're, mm. we're really forced to integrate and work collaboratively now so that's a you know that, that there'll be a change in how we work when we do those things too and so you know that, all those things if we get too worried about how it used to be you know mm. we're not going to um you know it, it is hard to thrive so just learning how the game's changing is really important for for, for some of us and just um Try not to get too pessimistic about some parts of it because there are, you know, you know, there's a lot of day-to-day battles. I can guarantee that sometimes science feels like you you're actually just one of the cast members in the Hunger Games rather than, <laughs> you know, than um, you know, in this lofty merit-based kind of thing. Because it's hard. There's lots of little things that that you know are really competitive and yeah. and decisions which you don't understand. That's that's every workplace will have those things. It's a Mm. Yeah, and that's just, and that's why taking that deep breath and moving back a little bit can be useful, and it, mm. it gives you the chance to go back to hopefully getting some resources to study the stuff, like you know, you know, why will caterpillars eat some plants and not others? You know, <laughs> and that's you know, and so yes, and, and that's really you know important. Mm. Now you mentioned before about uh, being able to play in uh, very fancy music venues and all that sort of stuff. Well, I've got you here. Any any gigs you need to plug? Uh-huh. <laughs> Any gigs we need to plug? Well, gee, um, we've got a lot of new material actually. So um, <laughs> we're, we're talking about your yes. hit band Cider Renaissance. Hit band Cider Renaissance. Still stuck on ninety Facebook likes, but um, <laughs> um, so the, we still have our day jobs. But um, yeah, we, 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 we I can't. I'm not sure when we're playing next. But um, we, we, we we have recently taken a deep breath musically and realised that we really like playing um, certain types of songs that perhaps will encourage people to enjoy listening to us more. So, uh, <laughs> what do you mean? 
Um, As in covers or what? Co co covers that just are a little bit out, that you don't expect a group of middle-aged men to play. So I think like, we, we played recently on a Father's Day gig and we we unveiled our, our second version of um, Xanadu, the famous song. From <laughs> and it was just it's just remarkable how we'll start playing this pretty stripped down version of these songs and people will recognize either a lyric or a um a chord and then start down so yeah so no no uh, gigs coming up at the moment I'm, i think we're looking at some in october and november but basically we're working on the the old new material and um <laughs> and um yeah we've, we've got we've got a new drummer so that's sort of very exciting so I, I, could, I feel like I could talk about this all day now. Just um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we we're trying to work out whether we should all buy um, cordless things for our guitars, so we can oh. move around the stage more. So it's all, you know, yeah, we're all heavily, heavily, heavily like trying to give up our day jobs because a lot of us don't have much longer left to work in them. So it's, um, yeah, <laughs> right. no, look, that's actually it's interesting you mentioned that. I think those sorts of escapes are really important for scientists and everyone. A lot of people all have them, but we we do have an obsessive group of people, and sometimes it's really unhealthy. So I find going and playing music with people and you know none of us can sing but we all sing you know, <laughs> you know all, all that stuff is really fun to do and it's what you know that or you know sport and all those you know all those outside things are really important because i think science will grind you down if you let it and mm. um you know you, you see it time and time again if you've been here long enough and it's okay when you're winning but when you're not winning it's really hard and you've got to find a way to deal with that yeah you're gonna have your escape <laughs> yep all right. Well, maybe we should have a follow-up podcast, and we can talk all about your okay. approach to music and okay. performance and well, all I, sorts of stuff. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like I could also tell you a lot more about why life as a caterpillar is really crap, because that's been one of our, our, our big adventures in the last year or so. But <laughs> if you're going to get reincarnated, don't come back as a caterpillar. That is my advice. It's um, all right. It's really hard, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, if people want to hear more about your work, you're on Twitter and... On Twitter, we've got a Lab Facebook page, which is usually there just to celebrate a few papers and mm -hmm. the cakes that people are making for lab <laughs> meetings. And it's, um, you know, we're, we're, one of the things that's interesting about being here for a long time is a really nice legacy of, of, of the students you've taught. So it's always fantastic to see where people have gone since they, they finished with you. So we try and celebrate those successes too. Mm, and that's um, the Integrative Ecology Group, is that right? That's us, yeah. Oh, I think it's called the Hoculi Lab as well. We, we, we haven't got our branding right yet. So, so <laughs> yeah. So, so. Just, just Google uh, Dieter Hoculi, Dieter Hoculi yeah. University and, of Sydney. And, yeah, drop us a line if you're interested in anything we do. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, Dieter. Thank you very much for having me, Joan. And thank you guys for listening. You can check us out on social media at InSituScience or at InSituScience.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, AEON.net. Dot .au